correctly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. radiocom Welcome to Me and Steve Talk RPG, the podcast where me and my friend Steve try and help you get the most out of your role-playing game experience. Welcome back to Me and Steve Talk RPGs. I'm here with my friend Steve. Hello. And we have a very special guest on this week, but before that, we want to shout out our podcast for the week. So our podcast of the week is going to be Order 66. Yes. Tell me a little bit about this Order 66 podcast that I've never heard of. <laughs> and you never listen to, right? Nope, never. Not not every episode <laughs> ever. No, the Order 66 podcast is actually the flagship show here on the D20 Network. And it is, of course, your one-stop shop for all things Star Wars RPG. GMs Chris and Phil have been talking about the Star Wars RPG for a really, really long time. And at least Chris, I know, will talk about it for a really as long as you're willing to listen to him or as long as he thinks someone is listening to him. But Chris is, is a wonderful person. So is Phil. And uh, if you're into the star Wars RPGs at all, check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes or you can just Google order 66 podcast, but uh, yeah. that's that. So who's our guest for the week, Steve? Well, I reached out and um, was able to contact perhaps one of the most prolific horror RPG authors out there. Let's put it that way. He's done work for Chaosium and Arc Dream and a bunch of other companies. And I think currently does most of his work for Pelgrane Press. This week, we're going to be talking with Kenneth Height. So uh, welcome to the show, Ken. Thanks for having me on, Steves. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to join us. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how to say it other than to say, you know, your work is, I mean, you're one of the premier horror RPG authors. And being as we've kind of been doing a series, you know, around horror and darker gaming for the month of October and now into November, we thought maybe, you know, it'd be nice to get someone on to, to talk about just techniques for running horror, because it is, it's a little trickier than just running your standard adventure game. Yeah. Um, horror depends more heavily on other player buy-in than any other kind of game that you can run or certainly any common kind of game that you can run because without the emotional investment, you don't have horror. You may have perfectly fine dark adventure. You may have a good fight against some vampires or some mummies or whatever floats your boat. But if the players did not show up agreeing to put themselves on the line and be open to being scared, obviously they may not be scared. You may, you know, things might not gel that way, but Everyone has to show up willing to explore that, to drill for that uh, well of uh, black awfulness, that fear uh, that lives down in everybody's uh, pineal gland or limbic system or whatever the metaphor is that we're using today. If that doesn't happen, horror is almost impossible. Even if one player is checked out, that can be the sort of the anti-seed crystal, the nega catalyst that prevents other players from really committing because they look over and they say, well, you know, Howard isn't scared. Why am I scared? I, I, I don't get it. And all, you know, all the primitive pack instinct that you're trying to develop 
in uh around the table in horror is undone if one member of the pack is like, eh, it's just a win. Don't worry about it, kids. You know, we've done this before. It's dice. So everyone has to bring it. And that willingness to bring it is, I would argue, the zeroth rule of running horror. That if you can't get that, if you can't have your players' backs and let them have each other's backs and let them have your back, uh, in terms of the trust that is needed to drill down and be willing to go a place that scares and unnerves and unsettles, then there's you're not going to get horror. You're certainly not going to get the best horror. You are, as I say, maybe going to get a very credible dark adventure game, but it's not going to feel the way that you, you sort of thought it might when you looked at the tentacles of the vampires or whatever on the cover. And, you know, since horror gaming is one of the few kinds of gaming that actually touches a real emotional stratum more than just, hey, I got a 20! that is actually a, a, a deep human emotion, I think it's worth making that extra effort, making that extra investment, trying that little extra level uh, to bring it there. Because if you do, in my experience at least, you get a more satisfying game more often because you are you know, uh, drilling down into that actual uh, emotional core of everybody. And uh, mere happiness and exaltation, they don't have nothing on it compared to horror in, in my experience. Yeah, well, that kind of reflects, you know, like like I've thought about it myself. There's this weird thing, right? When you're when you're playing a, a decent horror game, whatever, and it's one, it's it's like you said, it's that buy-in that you know everyone's there, going, okay, yeah, this is what we're here for. And then there's also that, and I'm sure you know what I'm speaking of, but that weird detachment that people who like to play horror games have at the table, where you know that your character is about to do something that is going to be very bad for them. But you do it anyway because in character you don't know that it's a bad thing or at least can reasonably deny that. And I love watching that sense of amusement amongst the players when, you know, yeah, I'm going to go down in the basement and check out the noise. I mean, uh, that sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, ironic detachment is fun. Meta play is generally pretty fun. Certainly if you are, you know, receiving on many channels, it can be more interesting than only receiving on one channel. But I think it's... It's more fun when you lose that meta distance. You're like, I'm going down in the basement and I don't know why I'm going down in the basement. I feel like I have to. I know this is a terrible idea. Why did I do this? What's happening? You get a, a I think, a, a more intense, certainly, and you know, you can argue more genuine uh, response if you detach from that atmosphere of safety and spectatorship and you actually engage. And, you know, again, everyone staying on the railing and watching their characters get chewed up in the grinder, you know, that can be good fun. I'm not saying it can't, but I think that, again, you're sort of deliberately stepping on your own drug there uh, to some extent. Yeah, that's fair. I hadn't thought of it in that light, but I understand exactly what you're saying. And yeah. So, I mean, aside from having willing participants, what, you know, what are some techniques you can use if you want to run a horror game and, and really, you know, make it feel real? I've heard, you know, people say, you know, do things, you know, include, you know, like different sensations as, you know, like, you know, describe the smell of something or, or the sound as opposed to just how it looks or, you know, but I mean, I'm sure you've, you know, a whole lot more than I do. Well, I mean, I've, I've written at least uh, one book twice on it and then a number of other, you know, chapters and other books, uh, GURPS Horror fourth edition is still probably, you know, the culmination of my, I guess three times I've written that book. Um, that's still the culmination of my sort of, you know, distilled wisdom on that. And I absolutely agree that uh, reaching for the 
the less common, especially uh, smell, which is a very, very powerful sense memory that we don't use very often in, in games. Using that uh, to bring uh, the unnaturalness or the uneasiness of the circumstances into play is really good. But the 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 sort of the core thing to keep a an eye on or keep track of in the game is pacing, right? You have to be able to, when the players are scared, push the accelerator uh, and get them over the lip into the pit, right? And then you have to be able to pull them back out so that you can push them back in again. The act of falling is the great act. This is, you know, what roller coasters have known for 200 years. Uh, and the roller coaster model, as I call it, is probably the most reliable model for how to run a horror session uh, that there is. And you can absolutely change it up and break it and do other things with it, but it's it, it always works is, is the great thing about it. So if you're on a roller coaster, you think, oh... There's the part where you get into the little chair and you're, it's explained and maybe the roller coaster is about Spider-Man. And so you're thinking about Spider-Man and then the car starts up the little uh, track and it ratchets ever more tense, ever more tense. And you start thinking, boy, that uh, I don't think anyone at this park makes more than minimum wage, including the guy who inspects the roller coaster. Boy, this is not a good look. And you're looking over and you see the metal fatigue and you see, you know, the general... Uh, cack-handed uh, uh, quality of the roller coaster and you're getting ever more worried about the roller coaster as you also are going higher and higher and higher. And then there's a point where you go over the lip and you have that free fall moment and you look down and you think, this was a terrible idea. I've never had a worse idea. And then the drop happens and full adrenaline hits you. And then you flatten out at the bottom and uh, sort of the recollection of what happens hits you. And then the roller coaster starts you up the next hill. And that model is very translatable into gameplay. So you begin with the setup, the introduction, this is the haunted house, this is the weird part of the docks, this is whatever. Uh, you start settling in, you you note things, you're, you're, you're getting into the, the Spider-Man of it, whatever it is. And then as you go up that hill, you're piecing together more and more information. You're getting more and more spoor or more and more clues or more and more enigmatic creepy things are happening and you and you're thinking oh this is not good this is not good what if it's werewolves what if it's werewolves and then you go over the top and sure enough it's werewolves the werewolves attack and then you have that moment of vertiginous fear which the gm should attempt to extend as much as possible and then you have the fight with the werewolves which is sort of the part at the bottom of the of of the roller coaster and once you fought the werewolves and you know either recovered or run away or whatever then it's time for the next the next hill up and some game sessions and some game groups just do one of those hills per night. Uh, you can do, you know, depending on the, on the group and the design of your roller coaster, you can do two or maybe even three hills per night. I don't think that I've done a three hill night in a while, partly because I'm not running call of Cthulhu literally all night, the way that I used to in uh, high school, but it, it remains a, you know, a, a, a model to think about. And if your game doesn't seem to be going anywhere, think, should we be going higher on the roller coaster? The answer is yes. And then, you know, add that tension, start ratcheting it up, get them ready to go over the lip and have that moment of uh, stark existential terror. That's not going to necessarily last as long as you want it to, but if you get them there at all, it will infuse everything that happens afterward. And if you just keep things moving rapidly without giving them a chance to breathe until you're at the actual breathing tension release part of the game, 
uh, that'll pay huge dividends. And then the next time you start creeping them out with something, they remember the last time they went over the roller coaster. They're like, oh, this roller coaster is even higher. It's even creepier. It's not werewolves. It's vampires. They're worse than werewolves. And they will talk themselves up that hill with you. Um, and the more you've worked with the given group or played with a given group, the more you recognize their tells and their signs. I have a player in uh, my Fall of Delta Green game who is reliably reluctant to go underground for any reason. And uh, when we start going underground, when the clues are all pointing, oh, I guess the solution's underground, she's already tensed up for that roller coaster. And it's it's terrific. It's, and if you can get all of your players into that car going up that hill, then I think you really have something. And that's, you know, there's lots of other models that you can use, but if you master that, you will never be without an idea of what to do for two to three hours on whatever game night is, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I remember I heard an interview with you a couple of years ago on another podcast where you were talking about this roller coaster model. And I thought it was, it works so well. And and one thing that I've done occasionally running, you know, be it Delta Green or whatever, is I'll throw in like just little like jump scares that aren't the big thing in the middle just to give that kind of that false start. And then they go, okay, no, that was but then something big is coming, you know, and kind of build that that way. Is that also a valid thing or is that me being ham-fisted? I mean, well, I mean, the question about something like that is, did it work at the table with your group? Because this is like, uh, I put in garlic, is that right? I mean, well, there should probably be some garlic, but every table is different. So we don't know, was that too much garlic? Was that too little garlic? We can't tell. So you need to, and this is the zeroth rule of all GMing, not just horror GMing, is read your players and know their responses and know what they're telling you. Even if they're not telling you verbally, they're telling you with their emotional reaction or their uh, intellectual reaction. If they're leaning back with their arms crossed or they're looking at their phone, you lost. It didn't work. If you did it and it worked in the moment, but then the next scare didn't feel as strong, then maybe you burst that bubble a little early. But on the other hand, if what it does is, as you say, feeds the next climb, then it worked to perfection. And some of that is going to be, this is ingredients for something that there's no recipe for. It's ingredients for chili. And it's really down to your tastes. You know, how much chili powder, how much garlic, how much, you know, uh, ancho powder, whatever goes in your chili. I think that uh, jump scares in movies work well because in a movie you are passive. And so the passive consumption of the jump scare just sort of juices your adrenaline and it juices your uh, colon esterus and everything else. In a game where you're active, the jump scare can sometimes come across what you're doing and you're like, yeah, 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 all right, it was the cat. We get it. Now we're back to hunting the alien. And it can be, I don't want to say frustrating, but it can be a skew or counter to the bigger build that you're trying. And a lot of that is really going to be, how did that play at the table? So, you know, how did those jump scares play at the table? I mean, for me, it, it felt like it, it sort of gave that momentary relaxation like that, that, okay, we hit the bottom, but then the, the dawning, well, Steve was playing in, in the one version of this game that I ran and it was, um, I'm sure you're at least moderately familiar with, um, the need to know quick start adventure for Delta green. Mm -hmm. Well, I changed it from a cabin to an old trailer out in the woods. Right. Yeah. And so they're poking around go underneath and they go to pull the skirting and of course you know they're all a little bit creeped out because i had the one player in particular who was tremendously disturbed i could tell even though we were playing online that they were out 
you know, in the literal middle of nowhere where like no cell phone reception, whatever. Mm, yeah. And so then they're going to look under the trailer and, you know, it was like a raccoon or something comes out from under the skirting. Well, I could tell it was, it was a moment of, okay, it was only a raccoon, but also that sense of, we didn't come out here to look for a raccoon. So there's something else. Where is it? Yeah. I think with me, what I would do, and this is just my table and my instincts, is you have that moment there, they're looking under the trailer, you see the raccoon, and everyone's like, has the moment of, oh, it's just a raccoon, and then it looks at you, and uh, its eyes are human, or um, <laughs> it uh, opens its mouth and a, a crow caw comes out instead of a raccoon noise, or something happens that is unnatural, so you get an immediate counter. Oh, it's just a raccoon, ah! And, uh, and that you know, puts them back in the roller coaster as soon as they possibly can. And I've done, you know, the creepy trailer in the middle of nowhere has happened in my games also. And sometimes what you don't show can be as powerful as what you do show. So the, they're interviewing this weird UFO guy and weird UFO guy is, um, he's got a, a cat dish out and he's, you know, asking them about his cat and have you seen my cat? And then they look around and it's like, there's, you know, you don't smell any cat urine. There's no sign that there's ever been a cat here, except for there's this cat dish. And uh, so that sort of added an area where, you know, a guy is either, you know, his cat has either run away or he's getting, you know, a little soft in his head. Those are not necessarily terrifying things, but they are unnatural. They are abnormal. They are things that let you know this is you know, you're on the other side of the sidewalk. You're out in horror country now. And the players unnerved themselves more speculating about this guy's cat than if I'd ever produced the cat and it had, you know, a, a Shoggoth bubo on it or something. I, I feel like the absence of the cat was almost scarier than ever paying that jump scare off. And this is what I mean when I say that this is so not improvisational necessary, but is so impromptu and what works in the moment or doesn't work in the moment is something you have to keep your eye on. And you can be someone like myself, who's been running horror games pretty much constantly for 40 years, ever since Call of Cthulhu came out in 1981, or you can be someone who literally just started it and you're going to still have to pay attention to uh, the individual players and get those feedback responses because it's it's always going to be different. Even the night is going to be different. Even if it's your same group of players, you know, maybe one of them had a bad day at work or maybe another one of them is um, uh, distracted by some other personal thing. And so that feed is going to be off. Or maybe you've thought of something really, really cool because you saw a really scary movie or you read a really scary book. And so you've got something all juicy and, and that they're not ready for. It's always going to be different and you always have to be ready for that. And so what I think is the, again, I don't want to say it's the smart play, but I think it's wise to have a bunch of different techniques and be ready to go to any of them the instant it looks like either they're working or the technique that you previously tried hasn't landed. I mean, you have to be like 30 Rock. You know, they have, you know, it's a 22-minute show with uh, 28 minutes of jokes in it. If one doesn't work, they're already on to the next one. You have to be sort of willing to do that with uh, with your horror as well, I feel. Okay. Yeah, well, that 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 does track with with what you know little horror experience I have as far as GMing. But I guess to a certain point, is it fair to say that running horror is more difficult than, so to speak, standard adventure games, or just that you have to be, like you said, not necessarily 
willing to improvise, but to have uh, maybe a slightly larger toolkit for yourself or, or just be aware of having a larger toolkit. I mean, I think it is more difficult. I think that um, running a challenging adventure uh, with a game that's relatively well mechanically balanced is almost falling off a log easy, assuming that your players aren't jerks. People showed up because they wanted to kill orcs or do whatever. You set out some orcs in an interesting tactical challenge, and there they go. They're happy as, you know, pigs in slop. Uh, not a problem. But if you have a goal beyond that, whatever that goal is, that's, you know, an extra degree of difficulty for you. So I think that horror is more difficult, and I think certainly people who are not used to it, uh, they fall into the old habits, and it's like, I don't understand. I had a crypt full of vampires. Why was no one scared? And the answer is you didn't make them feel like they were in that crypt. You didn't emphasize that these are dangers, not uh, speed bumps full of experience points. You didn't, you know, uh, run the game uh, as though the outcome was in doubt in a way that it is not in doubt if you're running a more conventional RPG. I feel like there's a lot of sort of assumption changes that need to happen for you, the GM, over and above the fundamental one of uh, you have to get the players to be willing to be scared and to be willing to buy in. And yeah, I mean, that would be true if you were trying for, uh, if you were running one of Emily Kerboss's wonderful romance games, you'd have to make it feel romantic, right? I mean, that's your job is you have to, uh, you have an extra level of work that you don't have to do if it's just, uh, there's one ogre and two centaurs fight. Uh, that, yeah, that sounds like fun, but it's, you know, a lower bar to, to shoot for, right? It's, you know, milk on cereal that never doesn't work, but sometimes you want some meat. Yeah, well, but that goes into, like you were saying, with, with horror, it's about an emotional response. It's not about the tactical challenge of beating the thing, necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is elements of that, and certainly Nice Black Agents, my uh, vampire spy thriller game, is literally also about the tactical challenge of beating the thing, because that's the uh, that's the sort of gumshoe part of it, the, the mystery-solving, problem-solving, uh, Jason Bourne super spy thriller part of it is the tactical challenge of beating the thing. It's not, you know, you, you don't slam the dial all the way over to emotional payout and never do any of the other tactical response or challenge solving or problem solving parts of what everyone loves about D&D. Because again, you're, you're leaving too many tools uh, in the bag and, and not using them. So what I find that works for horror is really the desire to express and feel that terror. Some rule sets, I think, feed that better. Uh, ones in which your character is fragile work, for example, better than ones in which your character is robust. But I feel like you can still, in the moment, uh, you could run a D&D &D game, and I have, in which the players are all eighth level or whatever, and they forget briefly that they've got a zillion hit points and a ring of wishes. Because right now, that lich is scary as hell. And they do not like it and they have all their, you know, primitive instincts are engaged and they are willing to be scared by that lich, even though the ironic distance or, you know, recollecting in, in, uh, in, in solitude, they think, oh, right. We had 400 hit points. The lich could never have done anything to us really. But at the moment they're scared and that is the payout. And then, you know, the mix is down to you. And so I feel like something like uh Delta green, something like call of Cthulhu, uh, where the player characters are fragile, where victory is not the assumption, that really, you know, straightens the runway for horror. But, you know, Knights Black Agents is is less of that. And then, you know, plenty of other games 
with very strong horror possibilities, D&D not least among them, are even less amenable, but you can still get a really good uh, horror session out of Ravenloft or whatever. Or out of Vampire, in which characters are legitimately very, very powerful because they're vampires, but if everything that you do is not at the very least uh, a moral horror, then I would posit that maybe you're not uh, playing vampire up to its full potential, much less up to your group's full potential. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, you know, to me, vampire, and I haven't played it in years, but vampire to me was... Well, I hear the fifth edition is very good. I, I, I heard some guy was the lead rules designer on it, but yeah, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I think that the point of the horror in vampire, like you just mentioned, is that it's the the horror of what your character is. Mm-hmm as opposed to necessarily the horror of finding the Shoggoth in the basement. Right. And again, there's many, many vampire adventures that turn on finding something more horrible than you, even if it's just your sire or an elder and having to deal with it. But that aspect of self-realization and psychological horror, obviously that's a huge strand of horror going, you know, way back into, you know, Melmoth the Wanderer, much less Psycho or any of the other sorts of uh, interior uh, post-Freudian horrors that you see. So, I mean, the external horror, external locus of horror is great. But again, you and I are both giant fans of Delta Green and Call of Cthulhu. That's also about breaking down your your sense of self and your ability to judge what is right, what is wrong, what is sane, what is unsane, and uh, make decisions on that basis. So to some extent, the personal disintegration in Call of Cthulhu or Delta Green is as important to that game as the Shoggoth in the basement is. Oh, yeah, very much. I've, I've said my opinion, you know, specifically with Delta Green, the real story of the game comes from that Bonds mechanic and watching the toll that dealing with all this crap takes on the agent's psyche and quote-unquote normal life, at least in campaign play. Now, it can, you know, obviously be a kind of a, a high-action tactical one-shot game as well but like i said to me that's that's the core of where delta green really shines is that bonds mechanic and to it's not the greatest example but in a lot of ways it is you know the, the walter white's progression in the breaking bad tv show right where you make one decision and then you make another decision to cover up that one and all of a sudden you know you're way down the road and i think to me that's that's the progression that and campaign is 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 very enjoyable to experience, even though it is kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and that's a legitimate and major and intentional part of the horror and, uh, all kudos to Greg Stolze for explicitly putting that mechanic into the Delta green standalone game. I think that, you know, I know that when I'm running fall of Delta green and we're doing the downtime adventures and everyone's dealing with their things and the player says, oh, I really want to investigate. I don't want to deal with my stupid family. And you just see the look that goes across their face when I'm saying, all right, which which of your bonds are you losing a point from? And they just shake their heads. It's like, oh, man, my sister. I, I guess I'm just... And I said, let's role play this out. Let's say what happens. This phone's ringing. You know, it's that it's Saturday afternoon. Your sister always calls you on Saturday. You've got the the books out. What do you do? I just sit there and I let the phone ring and you have a little moment. It's not a horror moment, but it is the individual of that character being, you know, corroded away by the universe. And it's very strong and it's great role playing. Admittedly, I have great players, but the mechanic very much encourages that. And that 
element of having a real life human being who nonetheless only has, you know, a dozen health points and can easily be turned into, you know, chopped salad by the next thing they see. That's a, that's a real, that that's a real moment. And I feel like it is one of the really strong things that, uh, the Delta green play does and that, uh, its ancestor call of Cthulhu did when you have the same sorts of decisions, uh, that you're making about, do I read the book and divorce myself ever further from human society or do I not read the book? And those, you know, the decision to do that is, I think Sandy's decision to do that made horror gaming possible. Sandy Peterson, when he designed call of Cthulhu in a way that, you know, very, very little in the history of game design has had such a huge effect and such a huge effect that was almost entirely what the designer intended. So I, I have never not venerated Sandy, uh, for that design. And without that, I would not have, you know, I could have spent 40 years running all kinds of things that at the end of the day were, if I was lucky, would only have been as scary as the entire run of Buffy, which is to say not really very. Yeah. Now, did you incorporate some sort of like bonds mechanic into fall of Delta green? I actually just picked up the PDF the other day, but I haven't gotten a chance to read it yet. Um, yeah, uh, the, I, I, you know, fall of Delta green is adapts the Delta green RPG to gumshoe and bonds are a gigantic part of Delta green RPG. So yeah, they, they very much do. Your bonds are basically, uh, determined by how many points you have in given interpersonal abilities. And so that tells you how much sort of spare empathy you have. You can sort that out. And then I just borrowed Greg's mechanic and translated it through to gumshoe. So if anything, I think you disintegrate maybe a tiny bit faster just because gumshoe is more uh, granular than, um, uh, the finer grained, uh, die 100, uh, Delta green system. But yeah, I mean, you, you, Greg Stolze gives you a mechanic like that. You're an idiot as a designer, if you don't use it. It was just, uh, and I loved having permission to actually make weapons far more fatal in Fall of Delta Green than Robin made in uh, As a Terrorist. The ability to say, oh yeah, if you get shot by an AK-47, there's a one in six chance you're just going to die. Suck it up. Um, and that is, for my money, that's just, uh, that's a gift that keeps on giving. So Lethality, the other great mechanical uh, introduction into uh, Delta Green. I was happy to bring that in a gumshoe. That, that that just that was I I took the rest of the afternoon off after I did that conversion. I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that is a fun mechanic, and and I've actually heard some some people with military experience say they really like that because they feel like it it reflects the way those weapons actually work in reality. Well, I mean, suddenly artillery legitimately becomes just the the mind killer, the little death that brings true oblivion the way that it's supposed to. So suddenly battlefield gaming makes immensely more sense, uh, you know, game with lethality, uh, operating, you know, and then not every game needs that obviously in, in nice black agents where you're playing, you know, Jason Bourne artillery should not be killing you from a mile away. That's the wrong way the universe should be working. So you should be, you know, if anything thrown clear of the blast by the blast, like in a Luke Besson movie. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, and I think you touched on that just a minute ago when you were talking about different systems, right? Because mm -hmm. It depends on what experience you're after. And I think like you said, yes, you can, if you have appropriate buy-in at the table, whatever, you could run an effective horror adventure in Dungeons and Dragons. However, I think it mechanically doesn't reinforce that well. And then the other side to that is I think, you know, I know for me, if I sit down to play Dungeons and Dragons, my brain goes to a completely different space than it goes to if I sit down to play Call of Cthulhu or Delta Green or 
whatever else. Um, yeah, one of the things that Call of Cthulhu does really well, and talk about your meta perspective for a moment, you see a game that says Of Cthulhu on the cover, Trail of Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu, Cthulhu Dark, whatever it is, and you are sitting at the table to play that, you have already bought in to the notion that your character is fragile and will probably die or go mad. And that is a different social contract, if you will, than you do when you sit down to play Dungeons & Dragons, to which the contract is, these fights will be tough and challenging, but I will have at least a better than zero chance of coming out with solid gold goodies and uh, more experience points. And that's a different that's a different deal that you make. And uh, that deal matters. And even if you're playing Ravenloft, uh, I think you're right that there is a degree to which you have to sort of, you know, mentally, you know, put on different pants uh, and play D&D but horror as opposed to just playing a game that is optimized or pessimized, I guess, uh, for horror uh, from the jump. And, you know, I've said everywhere I can, and I'll say it here, that Call of Cthulhu is the greatest role-playing game design ever. And a large part of why is because it also introduced that, that, you know, social contract of let's explore an emotion versus the social contract of let's just add more imaginary loot to our character sheet. That, I mean, that's a, that was a giant thing that happened. And it, you know, if you are making that decision at the jump, it's easier than to get the player buy-in that again is this super crucial uh, element of horror role-playing. Very cool. All right, Steve, I know you're actually more of a horror media fan than I am. <laughs> One thing I'll pipe in on and say is that I feel that horror games do this very well, but you get more role play out of people when they're invested in a horror game. And I mean, general role playing. It feels like with the the action adventure games, they really want to just, you know, I roll dice and I move my character and I'm a tactician on the battlefield and less of, you know, I'm getting invested in who my character is because horror has that personal you know, you're playing on on people's fears and and people's um, what creeps them out, what gets under their skin, and I think that makes horror more indicative of role playing versus just, well, I'm just gonna move or I'm just gonna attack. You know, it's it's more of a I don't want to touch that thing. You know, I don't want to poke it. I don't want to. You know, I don't want to think about how gross that's going to feel. And and because of that, it's going to make my character sort of react in a way. And I love that about horror RPGs. And I, I have to say that I really like Knights Black Agents and playing with the idea of humanity and the loss of that. And I mean, yeah, I don't necessarily want to say only horror gaming is real gaming and all other gaming is just fancy chess. That is not what I'm saying. But I will say that once you've made the decision that pursuing your character's emotional truth is an important thing you do with the game, that has bleed over. And, and obviously, I've been in games of freaking Amber Diceless, where the role-playing was thick and furious, right? Uh, and it was not because we felt, you know, uh, any particular kinship to our character, and it was certainly not because we felt threatened at any point. It was because, you know, I was in a room with a bunch of grandiloquent jerks, and that's <laughs> the way that we did it. And I include myself very much in that. So yes, you can get great role-playing out of any kind of a role-playing game. But I feel like, again, you know, like you were saying, playing a horror game, you're already beginning with the assumption that role-playing is the point, right? The point is to get scared with and for your character. The point is not to not do that. And so 
making it that assumption, I think, solves a lot of problems that other games need to work maybe a little harder or other GMs need to work a little bit harder at drawing players out into that willingness to do that. I mean, right now I'm running a Supers game uh, as well as my Fall of Delta Green game. My Supers game is all over the map. Some players role play at the drop of a hat. Some players are just really there for the problem solving. Some players are basically just tourists in the crazy super world that I've invented and are engaging in a sort of a, you know, wouldn't this be, uh, wouldn't this be delightful, uh, sort of a, you know, a shared creation sort of a, a mode. All of that is great. All of that produces really powerful, fun play at the table, but not all of it is what you are talking about. That sort of not even immersion, but sort of fully character focused, uh, gaming and, with horror, you make that you make that a, a goal for the table at the beginning, and with other kinds of games, you don't. And so, you know, I'm not going to say one is better than the other, but I will obviously say there's a reason I run horror when given the choice, um, and it's because uh, it's better. <laughs> yeah, I I completely agree with you. And another point I'll I'll sort of bring up is I find that when you have players who are willing to play horror, especially if they're new to RPGs it really helps bring them out of their shell because I find players are new players, especially are timid when it comes to actually role-playing. They want to be there and they want to play the game and they like how everybody else is role-playing, but they're scared that they're going to do it wrong in a way with horror, because you have that margin for error, because you have the, all right, we're just going to ratchet this up to 11. We're going to climb that tower. We're going to get to the top and we're going to come down over no matter what that's that gives them a sense of freedom and sort of a, a relaxing, you know, I can make a mistake and it's just going to make this game better. <laughs> I think yeah. is what, what happens in the mind. And and I love that about horror. And I, it's one of my favorite things and especially running horror for new players. Yeah. I mean, I, I think every new player is, is different. Uh, they've all got different questions and different things that they want to explore. But I absolutely think that there is a kind of player, and I certainly saw this when I was running Call of Cthulhu, uh, especially at conventions, people who once they are given permission to play suboptimally, but still excitingly, love it. They love the fact that you can't be yelled at for having done the wrong thing. I was in a basement with a Shoggoth. There was no right thing. The right thing was be in a different state. Um <laughs> And and I I agree that that pressure being off and that expectation of tactical brilliance uh, being gone is it's it's a real joy for for new players. But uh, other new players they just like to emulate stuff, and so they've played uh, Diablo or whatever. They get D and D really uh, on a gut level, and they want to play it, and that's great too. And with Nice Black Agents, I try to sort of have my cake and eat it too by saying, well, you've all seen the Bourne movies, you all seen James Bond. That's how to play, but what if vampires? And so, you know, you get the ability to fall into the role and then you still have the permission. Well, no one could have foreseen that those vampires would be there and ruin my plan. That's not on me, the brilliant Mossad analyst. That's on these stupid vampires who we have to hunt down and kill now. And hopefully that worked. I mean, anytime you do anything more complex than dungeon crawling, your, your life is, it's not in your hands. It's in the hands of some innocent table of, uh, of, of a GM and players. But I feel like there is not, uh, with one or two exceptions, there is not a absolute state of role play that everything should be going toward. There's a bunch of options. And the fun thing is that so many of those options uh, can have bloody farm implements along the way. <laughs> now, 
just to, to tie into something, you mentioned something in there and listening to your podcast a couple of weeks ago, you were talking about in your, your axes of game design mm-hmm. miniseries there about emulation for simulation. Do you think, and I, I know it's, it's not a, a yes, no answer, but do you think that horror tends to fall more toward the emulation side of gaming as opposed to simulation? Since in many cases we are dealing with things that, there is no reality to simulate. Yeah. I mean, you can't really go to the journal of the American medical association and say this. So tell me about vampires. Um, that won't work. You are emulating by definition, vampire stories, drama, movies, things that you, uh, read a hundred, you know, months ago and have forgotten. Mostly that's what you're doing. You are already bringing something, uh, unreal into the world, but in some ways, you're doing that in almost every role-playing game. Magic doesn't exist. Uh, if you get shot, you do not uh, have someone do first aid on you and you're back up on your feet again. No, you're in physical therapy for six months. We do a lot of unreal things to make games better. And I feel like uh, you can, to some extent, get really good, satisfying play out of the notion, this is 1920s Massachusetts in every respect, except there's deep ones. And that can be a really fun, gritty, interesting explore, just like this is a crazy nightmare world with Deep Ones and Massachusetts people. And sometimes we can't tell the difference. And that, you know, those are both good. Vampire the Masquerade is very emulative. It's very operatic. It's, it, you know, if any physical reality ever touches the game, and I say this absolutely intending, counting the ones that I've designed, then it, you have you have made a, a critical error, but it has to feel emotionally real. And that's, you know, there still has to be some grounding to it. So, you know, are we saying, are, is that person just emulating the imagination of what it might be like to be a vampire? Yes. But are they trying to have a genuine feeling, simulative reaction? Also, yes. So the, uh, the axes, uh, you absolutely can, you know, go from, you know, GURPS to total freeform. But in a lot of other ways, it's important to realize that in horror, mostly the best answers uh, come when you sort of hybridize stuff and you bring something in that uh, either grounds you or gives you an excuse to go nuts with the fake blood. Very cool. Horror is just, it, it's it's fun. Now, here's a question, and, and maybe you have some advice for people on this. Like you said, you, you really need the buy-in from the table to pull it off. Absolutely. Are there, do you have any, so to speak, secrets to convince people to try horror gaming out? Because you get a lot of people, especially, you know, I've, I've hit this where you're, they're coming from say a D and D background and you go, Oh, well, you're only going to have, you know, 12, 13 hit points. And they look at you and go, uh, uh, no, I, I don't want to play that. I'm scared. And not in, in the context that you want them to be for a horror game, but like that they have this idea that if their character dies or bad things happen to their character that, that somehow they've done something wrong. You know, do you have any like tips to, to convince the rest of your table to try out horror gaming, I guess is a good way to say it. I mean, some people are just not enjoying horror. I mean, one of my very best players in the superhero game doesn't like horror gaming. And that's why my Monday game is only a horror adjacent. If I run like unknown armies, there will be horror aspects in it for the others, but it's not going to be sending unknown armies as deep into the horror as it can go. Likewise, however, the fall of Delta green game that I ran 
was very much players who were new to horror, new to Cthulhu Mythos gaming in many respects. I think I had one player who'd played Delta Green a lot, and she really loved it. And I think, to some extent, that was just people trusted me and they trusted her. And they said, yeah, any game that Ken is running and uh, Darcy is cool with is probably going to be fun. I've got nothing else going on. I'll give it a shot. And then, then it's on you to sell it. But if someone is coming in and saying, nope, I don't like horror. I don't like vampires. I get nightmares. I'm phobic. I just don't enjoy it. Then it's like talking someone into liking cilantro. It's just not going to happen. It's a biochemical reaction for them. It's not, you know, you can't be, uh, as someone uh, famously said, you can't be reasoned into something you were never reasoned out of. So the way to sell it is just by, you know, establishing trust in your uh, life as a GM so that people either talk to people you've run or they've been in games with you before and they say, well, that was actually a really great D&D game. And maybe the way to do it is if you've got a bunch of, you know, D&D lovers, maybe you run Ravenloft and you say, wasn't that cool? Wasn't that interesting in ways that just the standard dungeon was not? And if the players say, yeah, that really was, then you say, now I'd like to introduce you to the, uh, you know, not the children's chewable version. Let's play a real horror game. And then, you know, hopefully fun begins. But some people just won't take to it. And it's, you know, it's sad. But, you know, some people, you know, some people don't like everything good. It's just the way the world is. No, and I wasn't trying to say, you know, like I said, I, I am fully aware that, you know, there are people who don't want to play horror games because they don't want to play horror games. And I'm, mm -hmm. you know, not trying to tell anyone to to try and convince someone to play a game they don't want to. Yeah. But it was more the, the do you want to say, they're just nervous about it or whatever. And, yeah. and how do you and, sell and, it? And, and then the way that you, the, the way that you sell it is either you sell it on some other quality that they've wanted to play. Like they, they're not sure about horror, but they have always wanted to play a game in the old West. And so you say, well, what about if we played haunted West or deadlands? Those have the old West. You could be a cowboy and they'd be like, oh, I do want to be a cowboy. All right, I'll do it. And then you just make sure that you honor their cowboyness while also scaring the bejesus out of them. And that will hopefully, you know, sink that hook and get them to say, all right, I don't need any cowboy nonsense. Let's do it. Let's hit the the hard stuff. Shoot me up with the Delta Green heroin. Let's go all the way into personal destruction. And then you've got another, uh, another winner. Um, and some of them will just say, all right, I like that, but I could see maybe Deadlands is as dark as I want to go. Or maybe they only want to play Vampire and they don't want to play you know, a game that is, um, you know, more personally destructive, your, your Delta Greens, or they only want to play nice black agents and so they don't want to play vampire. You can imagine various, you know, reasons and versions of it. And the great thing about horror is there are so many different horror games that unless someone really legitimately has a horror allergy, there's going to be a way that you can sort of like, well, I know that you don't like horror, but I'll bet you like Samurais. I'll bet you'd like to play an expedition in Legend of the Five Rings where you go south of the Shadow Wall and there's a bunch of Oni and demons walking around and a black magician doing dark horror -y stuff. Oh, I do love that. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a negotiation, like everything should be between GM and players. You're you're building a collaborative fun together. It's not they sit quietly and you read to them from Lovecraft or Algernon Blackwood. That's well, I, that might be fun. I don't know how good a reader you are, but it's not what you're here to do. It's not the collaborative art form that role playing is, uh, if you're not letting them collaborate. So, yeah, there's, there's so much to cover in this. Cause like you've said, you know, there, there are so many horror games out there and so many different takes on it from call of Cthulhu to, so to speak, the classic to 
Knights, Black Agents to Vampire to Deadlands to there's there's a horror spin on almost everything out there anymore. Anything else you you really want to speak on as far as horror gaming? I mean, I know you've got you know years of knowledge built up, but important points. I mean, a lot of it is is in the books. Um, if you look at GURPS Horror Fourth Edition, that's got basically my thoughts. It talks about you know building building horror up. I feel like one of the things if, if you've internalized the roller coaster and the player buy-in, you're ninety percent of the way there. As far as I'm concerned, everything else is just fancy uh, fringes uh, on the edge. But I will say that you should always be willing to stop play if someone is having a genuine traumatic reaction and you should ideally not get there. So uh, if you are playing with a bunch of people and you think, let's play a game. Uh, I've got a scenario based on the Ray Bradbury story, the small assassin where your baby is trying to kill you. You may want to say, Oh, but I think one of my players has got a baby at home. Maybe they don't want to play that. Maybe that would mess with them. And so you talk it out. You, you establish some ground rules and some boundaries. As I think we've both said, horror is such a gigantic country that you can take bits of it off the table and still have lots of stuff to do. Um, I, I feel like there's things that unnerve you and upset you and scare you that you might be willing to try, or you might be willing to try at some tables and not at other tables. And then there's just straight up red lines and every group again is going to be different. And every player is going to be different. And it's incumbent on you. If you're messing around with the, the high voltage to, you know, read the freaking labels, I, I guess that's my, my point that I would make, you know, I, uh, there's, you know, X cards, there's safety tools out there, lots of ways to play horror. I don't say defang your horror and, and play, you know, Victorianized, uh, a child-proofed horror with all the rough edges sanded off, but I say don't gratuitously harm your friends because that's the act of a psychopath. That's not the act of someone who's, you know, uh, trying to provide uh, an artistic evening. Yeah, yeah. I think that's where, you know, like we've been saying it all night, right? Horror gaming is this communal experience where you you all say, okay, we're here to experience this sensation. It's not about making someone feel what do you want to say? Genuinely bad. Right. You may want to feel genuinely scared, but when you get up from the table, you want to go, oh yeah, that was a fun game. I enjoyed feeling that way in that moment. Right. Not, man, that's going to stick in my head and give me nightmares for two weeks. Well, you may want that too, but well, uh, what you don't want is for people to not say anything, get red in the face and never talk to you again. What you don't want is for someone to have a genuine emotional meltdown or psychological crisis as a result of some nonsense you came up with to kill a Wednesday night. I mean, that that seems like ridiculously out of proportion, especially given the kind of fun things you can do. And if you have a player who is genuinely very, very sensitive, maybe they go in the same box as the player who just doesn't grok horror and you play supers games or you play D and D or you play a million other things. Horror is not the only thing that you can play ever with your friends. It's uh, just, you know, in my opinion, uh, some of the best things you can play with your friends. Fair enough. Fair enough. So as we're getting ready to wrap up here, obviously you've got a lot of work out there. We've mentioned a, a large amount of it. You know, you've got your podcast. Is there anything in particular you'd like to plug? You know, I know you've got a sorted, I guess, actual books, not just game text out there. You know, you've got a podcast, anything at all that you'd like to. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you can go to atomic overmindpress.com and you can get the PDFs of the new 
edition of Tour to Lovecraft The Tales and the brand new Tour to Lovecraft The Destinations. If you want PDFs, you can download those from Atomic Overmind right now. I'm not exactly sure. The Kickstarter backers should be getting them shipped from Minnesota at some time in the hopefully very near future. Um, and then I'm not sure when they'll be on the shelves of your friendly local game store. But, you know, feel free to go pester your friendly local game store to order them. Uh, and then failing that, uh, you can absolutely go to uh, Renegade Press uh, and get the Second Inquisition book that I developed and wrote some of for Vampire 5th Edition. So that's, I guess, my most recent uh, thing that has dropped. And uh, I'd uh, be interested to see what people think. Uh, we had the sort of the fun challenge of doing it a monster manual for the monsters, which I, I think uh, works pretty well and is something that hasn't really been done with that line for a while. So I was I was happy to give it a shot. And then obviously, as you alluded at the top of the show, Pelgrane Press, if you have a sneaking suspicion you haven't bought everything I've written, go to Pelgrane Press and make sure that's my advice. And uh, I'd also just like to recommend anyone, obviously, if you're listening to this as podcast listener, Ken does a podcast with Robin D. Laws that is just top shelf. You know, they, they cover many different things, but it's never boring. And it's always, I always, almost every episode, I come away with this, oh, I hadn't thought about that. That's a really cool idea. I'm going to use that for something. Well, I'm going to use that for something is certainly one of the raisons d'etre of the podcast. It's Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Uh, available at uh, ten, Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com or wherever your your fine podcasts are sold in your grocer's uh, refrigerated section, as we used to say. You know, check us out. Uh, we got a Patreon. Um, if you feel like, boy, you know, I thought we what that guy needs is, you know, more liquor and uh, less need to do work. Well, absolutely back us on the Patreon and then Robin will get half of it too. So you'll know that at least half of it will be given to someone who deserves it. And, and I think that that's more than fair, really. I mean, you don't get that. <laughs> You don't have to get confidence with any other investment that you make, but knowing that Robin gets half your money is reason enough to back us, I would say. Well, and, and you figure probably the other half is going to go to some good-hearted bookstore owner. So. Absolutely. Uh, 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 bartenders and bookstore owners, the veritable sinews of our society, I feel. All right. Well, all that fun being said, it's time to do our, our little show-ending thing, unless you have something else to ask, Steve? Nope. Nope. Not muted again? Steve's nope. been muted the whole show. He's just torn up. Nope. I have just been sitting here enjoying the conversation between you and, and Steve. It's all Steve's fault. That's that's our motto. Yep. It's always Steve's fault. It's always <laughs> Steve, that guy. But, yeah, with it being Steve's fault, I think it's Steve's fault that we're at Game of the Week. Woohoo! Game of the Week! All right, so would you like one of us to go first here, Ken? Sure, knock yourselves out. It's I'm a guest in your show. I'll just sit here and eat from the cheese plate until you need me. All right, so do you have something, Steve, or do you want me to go? I actually do have something. Okay. So last week, our well, week prior, our guest has actually recommended two pay-what-you-want games. Well, I have a pay-what-you-want game. I have Mothership, the player's survival guide, which is pay-what-you-want, which... Mothership, in general, is a very cool sci-fi horror game. I have Not that I need any more games to read, because I just finished reading Cult, but Mothership is next up in line. And with the player survival guide being pay what you want, that's a pretty good deal for me. And it's such a cool game because there is there are things that are scary, and then there's space. And space is terrifying. <laughs> I think, Steve... 
and I, I'm not sure, but there's been rumblings that there is an impending Kickstarter for the actual full version of that game. Yeah, I've I've heard rumblings of that too. So keep an eye out. But like I said, and it's beautiful too. I mean, if if I'm allowed to talk during the segment, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's a gorgeous piece of a thing. It's it's kind of frankly a little bit of a slap in the face to simple game designers who only write. Um, I feel he's produced a really gorgeous game. Uh, just physically uses the space really well. So you think, well, it's just a few pages. That's not. It's crammed in there. It's dense. It's rich. It's delicious. It's a. It's a. It's a great thing. Big fan. Yeah, it's absolutely. I completely agree with you. Gorgeous game. It's yeah. Definitely check out Mothership. And like I said, right now that player survival guide. It's pay what you want. So recommended price is seven dollars. I personally think it's more than that, or think it's worth more than that. But that's up to you. It's pay what you want, not pay what I want. So, what do you got, Steve? Well, I decided to go in a direction. Uh, this is for a game engine that I've actually got two books. It should be showing up any time now, but this is unfortunately not one of them. And this is a game called Vazen. It's from Free League. It's Nordic Horror. And it's, you know, welcome to the mythic north, northern Europe of the 19th century. This is a land where, you know, the myths are real. Trolls, whatever, you know, a lot of the, the Scandinavian folklore, you know, PDF is normally 25 bucks probably by the time this airs the the October Halloween sale will be over unfortunately so uh it'll be back up to that price but you know PDF wise I mean hey if you've ever seen a free league game you know they're all gorgeous like I said I'm I'm waiting on on two different titles from them that should be showing up anytime now I've heard their physical quality if you buy the you know the hard covers is is also top notch it uses their um a version of their year 0 engine which is just a D6 dice pool and a uh, couple of the different discords and stuff that I hang out on. There's been a lot of people really raving about Vazen. In fact, I know uh, we have a user in our discord who's talking about trying to adapt massive Nyarlathotep to Vazen just to see if he can do it. So that's mine. I think this week is Vazen. And again, another gorgeous game and uh, one that I think uh, was in the running and won probably a, not a few ennies this year. So if that's a consideration, sounds good. Yeah, that's a, uh, I don't see anything in the listing about any's, but. Well, I could be wrong, but I know there was in the, in the mix, it was nominated for some and yeah, I, it is very attractive. I, well, yeah. Didn't alien, or was that last year that alien cleaned up in the any's? Uh, I think some of the alien, um, supplements got some any's, uh, free league won a ton of any's this year. <laughs> I know that. And I, I was, I, I hosted, but I did not keep track. So. I can't really tell you specifically what they, the, the, the free league guys just kept coming up. It's just a thing. <laughs> it just kept happening. All right. So, so what would you like to advise people to, uh, to scare themselves with or just have fun with? I mean, I think, uh, this is going to be airing in November. So, uh, let's move a little bit out of spooky season and into a mere decorative, uh, festive gourd season. I feel like, uh, microscope is a game that a lot of people maybe know, but not a lot of, not enough people know. Uh, it's by Ben Robbins, and it's the game of building the setting for your other game. That's how we use it. Uh, there is a role-playing component uh, in terms of acting out scenes, but the basic structure is you establish a background. You say, we're going to do the history of this uh, planet uh, from the colonization by the first uh, humans all the way to the, you know, uh, it being destroyed in a galactic war, and then you set up all the different events of that history, you do it entirely collaboratively. The uh, the player groups 
uh, determine what is and isn't allowed in the universe. So you uh, get your genre assumptions all settled at the beginning. It is an amazing tool for other games over and above its value as a standalone fun activity. Uh, I have used it to build uh, the background of my uh, space game that used the Star Trek uh, role-playing rules that I designed for uh, Decipher. I've done it for the uh, missing history from a Nobilis game. Uh, we realized that the excrucians had eaten some big chunk of human history and replaced it with boring, dumb history. So we microscoped the the history for our Nobilis game. Uh, I've done it as the background for my ongoing supers game that I'm running right now. It's got a million household uses. Uh, you can do it in you know entirely uh, fantasy universes. You can do it in the actual world uh, with your specific variations, be they supers or vampires or whatever. It's very robust, uh, very fun. No one, uh, we when we play Microscope, we are always staying uh, later than we mean to, and we are always saying, oh man, I wish we'd had another hour to, to just keep adding stuff. At no point are you bored, or have we ever been bored playing Microscope, and I don't know that that's true of any role-playing game uh, that I've ever played. So if you don't know it, it's by Ben Robbins. You can buy it from his website, Lame Mage, or it's at uh, IPR. I'm sure it's at other fine game retailers online and off, but uh, it's uh, a really remarkable combination of, of both a game that is in itself fun, but as a meta game ad or a supplement to every other game that you run, it is remarkably great. And I think that maybe people go to sleep on that a little bit. They, they play Microscope for itself. They don't say, well, we're going to play this one terrific game, but we don't all want to memorize a... 80 million books worth of backstory, play the microscope, you've co-built the backstory. You remember it much better because you were there. Um, and I, I cannot emphasize how great that makes the game feel. Everyone's got skin in it. Everyone feels invested. Everyone feels like a co-creator. Uh, the difference between a, a universe that you co-designed and a universe, even a great universe that I designed, is palpable at the table. So I really uh, recommend uh, Microscope. Awesome. I've actually heard of it, although I've never, never seen it. Yeah, well, I didn't really know what it was. So now that you've described it this way, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. Yeah. Microscope has not been on my radar because I sort of glanced at it and was like, I don't quite get this. Now that you've described it, I get it. Yep. And it's, uh, it's very intuitive, very easy to do. Um, you can do it with a bunch of weird, crazy history majors like I play with. You could do it with anyone who's just invested in movie continuity or any any kind of narrative art if they care about it they can play microscope it's super accessible it's it's literally put down alternate events are they good events or bad events are they big events or small events that's all the decision making you need to make everything else is your creativity it's very very good yeah that sounds really nice it sounds like a sounds like a fun game to play with my writer friends yeah um, yeah your writer friends will um never stop playing it i feel yeah. <laughs> I that'll be the one to get them into RPGs, but that's a go. different story. So we do want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a really great honor to have you on and, and have you come talk about our uh, horror RPGs. Thanks so much for having me guys. Absolutely. And thank you. Yeah. And with that, now that we've come to the end of the show, we want to remind everybody as always links are in the show notes to our discord, to Ken's information, uh, any of the games we talked about in game of the week, our Facebook, Twitter, all of that's in our show notes. And as always, be kind to one another and get out there and play some RPGs. Take care, y'all. 
Intro and outro music by the band 12 Noon. You can email us at meandsteverpg at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and RPGs. Find us on Facebook at Me and Steve RPG Podcast. On Discord at Me and Steve RPGs. And as always, all of these links are in the show notes. Thank you and be kind to one another. Cigar. Cigar, 20 bucks, dog. You got to go down the street to the store and buy that. But now I was just never into the whole vampire craze because when I was in college was when Vampire the Masquerade really hit. The Anne Rice novels and the movie were out and it was like, okay, this is trendy. I don't want to be into the trend which is just my personality <laughs> yeah all right i mean but we're not here to psychoanalyze you we're here to talk about <laughs> horror gaming right right yeah sorry i i, I was talking and i was muted uh, one <laughs> well, thing i'll pipe in that's in... a problem right there i'm gonna just jump in as a podcaster and say don't mute yourself yeah um <laughs> steve's no. been muted the whole show he's just no I, torn up. I have just been sitting here enjoying the conversation between you <laughs> And, and Steve, because it's, it's, he's asking, I'm bad at interviews because he asks all the questions that I want to ask. He beats me to them. You know, I'm not, again, I'm not here to tell you guys how to run your railroad, but maybe sort that out ahead of time because (laughs) with only one Steve, the, the, the balance is thrown off. I mean, I don't need to tell you that, right? Yeah. Well, our, our problem is if we plan we always run off the plan anyway. Yeah. Well, that's fair. All right. Well, I, again, I mean, I'm, I'm just worried that, that Steve felt that he was, you know, bullied and silenced, uh, by not by me, obviously, but by you, Steve, and I won't stand for it personally. It's all Steve's fault. That's, it's, that's our it, motto. Right. Yep. It's always Steve's fault. It's always Steve, that guy. Yep. Uh, all right. Well, then. Yeah. With it being Steve's fault, I think it's Steve's fault that we're at game of the week. Woohoo! Game of the week. Nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.